following is a production of Government CIO Media. Welcome to GovCast. We are so excited to roll out this inaugural episode and start highlighting the tech personalities behind the headlines. These are the personal stories of the government and industry leaders transforming the public sector and the bits and pieces you typically don't hear covered by publication in this space. So we'll share these untold stories about how these influencers got to where they are, their passions in and outside of technology, and the roadblocks they've encountered on their journey. You'll find these stories are not always what you'd expect them to be, and that's exactly what we're hoping to uncover with GovCast. I'm Camille Tudy, Editor-in-Chief of Government CIO Media. I've been covering the federal IT movers and shakers for the past 10 years or so, and I started as a reporter writing about government contracting. After that, I got into technology and IT reporting and quickly became an editor. A year ago, I came on board to launch Government CIO Media, and it's been a huge success, and we've had tons of fun. Now I'm excited to continue sharing our content in this podcast and have conversations with the influencers in this community. I'm Amanda Ziede. I'm a reporter with Government CIO Media. I started my journalism career writing about lifestyle, food, and travel, and somehow found my way into the government technology space about three years ago, and it's been my beat ever since. But rather than just telling the news, I am passionate about telling people's stories. So I've spent these past three years learning about not only the innovative projects in government, but about the people making them happen, and the teams making IT and government more efficient. So when I joined Government CIO Media, I had the opportunity to help start something new and now the platform to share those stories. Today, our guest is Jose Arrieta, Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services Division of Acquisition. Jose, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there a shorter way to say your title? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I try to just simplify it and just say, I'm Jose. I run acquisition at HHS. Great. This is Jose. He runs acquisition at HHS. <laughs> so what does your uh, title actually entail? What, what does your position mean? So I'm responsible for all of the policy functions of HHS acquisition. I'm also responsible for the acquisition systems, which facilitate the delivery of about $24.5 billion a year in, in federal contracts, and then the training and education of our workforce. So those are the kind of the three areas of responsibility that I have while working at the Department of Health and Human Services. So whenever I see you on the speaking circuit, you are always advocating blockchain and the potential of blockchain. So talk to me a little bit about what you see as the greatest potential of blockchain, especially when it comes to health in a perfect world and more realistically. That's a really good question. You know, I believe that change has to occur as it relates to how we deliver services, whether they're health services, whether they're acquisition services. I'm in an interesting position in the sense that I have the ability to drive change through the acquisition systems. So when I look at a technology like blockchain, I see that we actually have the capability to take an existing set of systems, layer it with blockchain technology, and actually take all the data off of our existing systems and roll them into a blockchain environment in a cloud. 
from that point forward, you can actually rebuild your business processes off the blockchain. So when you think about health and you think about healthcare networks, when you think about the fact that there are multiple ways that healthcare services are delivered and multiple points at which data is extracted from an individual, blockchain becomes an enabling technology that actually allows you to rebuild your business processes without disrupting the existing function of the way systems deliver service in the healthcare market. So lots of hype around blockchain. So when you talk to your peers in government and industry, how do you explain blockchain or how do you keep that conversation going about this technology when people have that shiny object syndrome? A lot of people, when you mention blockchain, they think that you're just talking about the hype and that you aren't going to implement it. So I think the key is to actually try and implement it. And so we've actually just done an an implementation and built a proof of concept at HHS, and I'll, I'll share a little bit. But that's the key to actually making it not just hype, making it reality. So a lot of the feedback as I get is that, well, you could use a standard database to do that. What you have to understand about blockchain is blockchain gives you the ability to extract data from five or six different systems, like I said before and rebuild business process, but it enables you through the business network to touch each individual in your business network. And think about that and actually deliver services directly to them. So over the last, I don't know, six weeks, we've actually built the capability at HHS, for example, to look at the terms and conditions and prices paid on over 100,000 contracts over an 18-month period. It's about $40 billion in spend. We've taken an AI algorithm, plugged it into a blockchain-based data layer, And we're analyzing terms and conditions and pricing on 10 product categories in real time, meaning every second. Now, if you do strategic sourcing at another federal agency, it will take you maybe three months to actually collect all that information from your entire department. Then you put it into one giant Excel spreadsheet. Then Camille, the contract specialist, goes through and starts reading the terms and conditions to try and understand the difference in the pricing. We've automated that on top of a blockchain in one second. We are extracting data from five contract writing systems loading it up to Hyperledger Fabric, which is a blockchain OS, and we've built via microservice an artificial intelligence-based algorithm that reads terms and conditions and pricing. So I know, as an example, that total dollars in glove purchases across the Department of Health and Human Services have crossed all 12 opt-devs, the prices paid, and the range in terms and conditions. Imagine having that information in the palm of your hand when you go to make a purchase on behalf of the federal government as a contracting professional. And it didn't take three months to get that information. You were able to actually get that information in one second. So I'm going to pull out my phone right now. I love that I'm not on TV because nobody can see me. (laughs) So my wife went to buy something at Target the other day. And when we were walking up to the checkout counter, she looked it up on Amazon. And she showed the lady from Target the pricing on Amazon. They immediately lowered the price. We are empowering our contracting professionals in that way. And we built that in four weeks. There's more functionality. I'm, I'm just telling you one piece of functionality that we built, but there's actual more. I also just love how you threw in AI into the conversation just casually, you know, with blockchain. Like, it's something that we all do every day. The combination, blockchain in and of itself is a foundational enabling technology. What it allows you to do is it allows you to recreate a business network on the basis of data and tie together multiple different systems, Right. So if I was running a private equity right now, and I say I wanted to buy up like five regional distributors of ice, right? I'm making up a stupid example. Say I wanted to buy five regional distributors of ice, each that had a customer base. Historically, you'd buy them up. You'd try to lower your delivery costs by contracting with one company. 
you try to lower your storage costs by creating one giant storage facility. You know, you try to cut costs. With blockchain, we can take the data from the five different companies that we've purchased. We can load it up onto one data layer. We can actually rebuild the business process of how we interact with customers, how we interact with distributors, how we interact with suppliers directly on top of the blockchain while not interrupting the operations of the five businesses we just purchased. It is a way to actually recreate value and value exchange in a non-disruptive manner. It only works if you combine blockchain with artificial intelligence with robotic processing automation. Why? Now I have an immutable record of data that exists from whatever systems I'm interacting with. And the power of robotic processing automation and artificial intelligence becomes even more valuable because we know that that data is accurate and it's a representation of what actually exists. So I think the combination is really important. Is this the HHS Accelerate program? Yes, it is. And that took six weeks, you said, to complete? One, it's it's not complete. It's ongoing. Okay. Let me tell you what we did in six weeks. So the contract was awarded somewhere around mid-April, April 20th, April 25th, something like that. We went around HHS and we mapped out the entire acquisition lifecycle. And we met with each opt-dev to do that. And that took a little bit of time. Once we had it mapped out in a human-centered way, and when I say human-centered, I mean... Camille, I watched you log into your iPad and you click submit seven times in order to enter your password and actually log into the system. We wanted to get that feel for how the workforce was struggling with their systems at HHS. So we took some time to do that on the front end. But when we started the development work, it actually took six weeks to take five contract writing systems, layer them with Hyperledger Fabric, which is a blockchain OS, create a standard data taxonomy within Hyperledger Fabric that was a representation of all of the information that exists in a federal contract. We used machine learning algorithms to actually extract the data from the five contract writing systems and cleanse it. What are we doing? We're teaching a machine that VER, V.6, VER.7 all mean version. Allow that information to pass and tag it as version in our standard data taxonomy and hyperledger fabric. This is all over six weeks. We took that artificial intelligence-based microservice that I outlined, we plugged it into our data layer, And now in real time, we can automate terms and conditions and pricing in 10 product categories. Then we said, "Mm, we need to add value for the program manager. We need to add value for the planner of federal acquisitions. So we've actually created a single portal, and it's not functioning yet, right? It's a prototype right now. So we've created a single portal where industry partners can actually submit their information to HHS. And every time they log into that portal, that node on the blockchain, they have a record of every RFI they responded to, every RFP they responded to. That information is automatically sorted into a market research document. So when I'm a program manager and I'm going to make a buy, I can get an automated look from a market research perspective of information that was submitted in response to an RFI. I can also get all the historical spend data from the five contract writing systems and terms and conditions. Think about how powerful that is. If I'm trying to solve cancer, I'm not going to do research on historical contracting information and prices for professional services. I'm researching cancer. Imagine if I could read through a market research document with that information and use that to actually winnow down my thoughts as to what I needed, how much value that would add for that program manager that's trying to solve cancer. Then we took that information and we said, you know, we should pre-populate an acquisition plan for that program manager. Not that it's final, but we should put information about risk. We should put information about companies that exist. We should put information about how many different contracts historically HHS has used for that service or that product in a document so that they can read with the terms and conditions and pricing of that product or service. So they have a valid insight into what's happening across the department. That's what we've actually done in six weeks. 
all while creating a new user interface. So it'll look and feel. And uh, Camille doesn't have to hit submit six times when she actually logs into the system. So that's kind of what we've done over that time frame. So you have a lot of technical expertise. So are there occasions where when you're talking with your acquisition peers that it hinders you? Because I'm going to assume that not every acquisition professional, even at your level, has the kind of knowledge that you have of technology. I think that the folks at HHS are pretty open-minded, and um, I haven't been hindered in terms of engaging with them. In fact, they've kind of welcomed the discussion. What I love about working at HHS, and just a kind of little side note, as I went down the road of blockchain, there are folks that would start to buy blockchain for dummies books and digital gold. The next wave, you know, Don Tapscott's new book on blockchain, and I'd see them on their desk and they'd be reading them. So HHS is a pretty open-minded culture. It's a pretty flexible culture. And uh, I haven't run into that. I, I know that they don't understand sometimes everything that I'm saying, but they've been very open-minded and actually helped us kind of move in the direction we want to move in by providing value in areas um, that may not relate to blockchain, but may relate to actually getting the work done. So you said that the program is continuous. So what happens next? We've actually shared the prototype with two groups within HHS. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll share it with all of the 12 groups that we met with when we mapped out the acquisition lifecycle. That'll be the first thing. And then over the next couple of sprints, we will actually look at other capabilities that we can create via microservices, maybe an automated auctioning platform, maybe digesting a catalog and terms and conditions and pricing for a company that we negotiated a contract with so we can provide a single click ordering capability, maybe opening up a series of APIs so we can take data from another federal agency and we can actually digest it and analyze it for them so that we can provide them insight on prices paid in terms and condition. So we have a number of things in our roadmap and what we're doing, you know, I'm giving you kind of a range of stuff. We'll prioritize them based on the feedback we get from our users. So what we're doing now is just kind of collecting them. We're going to finalize kind of what we build so far, test it, allow folks to play with it and improve upon it, and then we'll scale into other areas. I will say that in the very short future, one of the things we'll do is for services. We'll actually build a microservice for services to analyze hourly wait rates and the location that the services are actually delivered to provide that insight at the fingertips of our contracting professionals when they go to negotiate that deal. So that's kind of the next couple of things we're looking at. You're not stopping at blockchain. We are using the blockchain as a foundational layer to rebuild all of our business processes. And then we're using artificial intelligence and robotic processing automation to actually rebuild those business processes as microservices off the blockchain. So we're delivering them in concert. And six weeks for government is pretty fast. What was the hardest part of, of implementing that process? Was it educating the acquisition officers or finding ways to put new technology on these legacy systems? I think the hardest part was I was pretty new. So I started at HHS in January and we started this work, I think it was around mid-April. I think I said April 20th, maybe it was April 17th. I, I don't really remember the exact date. You know, I was just learning where the bathroom was. So I think the hardest part was actually kind of figuring out like how much money I had in the budget, uh, who was my contracting officer, as well as kind of messaging it to the workforce like, hey, this is something I want to try. This is something I want to do. And that was kind of the tough part. So how do you get people on board when it comes to technologies as hyped as blockchain? You know, it helped that we had I had done some of this work at GSA and the folks at HHS had read about it. And organizations like yourselves uh, covered that work 
Um, and I had the demo that I could share. And when you see the demo of kind of what we did at GSA, or if, or if we were to show you the demo of what we did at HHS, it, it clearly shows value. I, I think that the, the second hardest kind of piece of doing this work is the communication piece and explaining to people what you're going to do. And I, I spend most of my time re-explaining what I just explained to you over and over and over again to people. But I think that the way that we did that at HHS was through a full-blown business plan. We actually wrote a business plan within a couple of weeks that outlined what we're doing and showed return on investment. And that's important. You make it sound so easy to kind of come in and start a transformative program like this in a government agency where, you know, we hear other people are struggling. What, what's your advice to other government officials trying to implement change this way? Yeah. I mean, change isn't easy. <laughs> if you had my wife here, she would say, oh, uh, you haven't seen how many text messages he sends at night, okay, back and forth with some of the guys that work for me. I mean, she's even said to me, uh, his wife, there's a guy named Oki Mac that works for me. He's a real sharp guy. He's helped me on the cybersecurity front. She was like, his wife hates you. <laughs> she's like, you two need to stop talking back and forth. So, you know, if you're going to try something transformative, it's not easy. And it's something that you actually have to go out and educate on. You actually have to go to 2300 Wisconsin Avenue and, and do the interview and explain it to people. You have to stand in front of a couple thousand people in industry and say, look, I'm going to do this. And I think it's going to add value for you. You know, you, you know, I always say that, you know, I put my chips into the middle of the table and said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to live with the downside if it doesn't work. That's the risk. You have to fully commit to it. So when it comes to education, what is something that you yourself need more education on when it comes to the acquisition field or technology as a whole? Camille is always asking these questions that are like very <laughs> penetrating. You know what I mean? Very what deep. can you do better? <laughs> First, I just want to say, uh, be a better husband. Okay, that's, that's one thing I can do better. You know, what I've tried to do to keep myself kind of sharp, I spend most of my time when I'm not at work reading. So whether it's digital gold, people say, why digital gold? It's about Bitcoin. The reason why I read digital gold um, is because it talks about how an industry evolved around Bitcoin and how companies evolved around Bitcoin. And it gives you a perspective of how different people try to capture different aspects of the market, some with good intentions and some with not good intentions. But I think it's important to understand how the marketplace itself um, will change because in, inside the inside the HHS, it is a marketplace. And, and whenever you change something, it has a residual effect. I think the other thing is they read a lot of books on leadership. And I'm not uh, reading books and like highlighting like lessons and poems on leadership. I, I'm trying to get perspective of how, you know, teams gel and come together and how to articulate challenging topics and be patient sometimes and sometimes push and different strategies to actually do that. So I think the way that I stay educated is I try to read as much as I can. And the other thing is, and I, I learned this playing college basketball. I learned it after I played college basketball. I wish I would have learned it before. I think I would have been a better player. But the more that you look at something that you're competing with, so if you're a company, if I'm Amazon, the more that I look at Microsoft, right? If I am star shooting guard in a college basketball team and I look at another star shooting guard, the more that I pay attention to my competitor, the more I become like my competitor. And that's not always good because you're not taking advantage of your own strengths. So it's important to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and what your competitor's strengths and weaknesses are, but don't measure yourself on what they do well. Measure yourself on the value that you can add and never lose sight of that. 
It takes a discipline to actually do that. But I think that's how you truly build something valuable. And I think when you navigate through an organization, understanding your strengths and weaknesses and never losing sight of what your strengths and weaknesses are versus trying to be something that you're not is the key to actually having success because you know where you need help. So I have to ask you, how does one go from playing college basketball to a career in government? So, you know, I thought I wanted to be a, a grad assistant, a college basketball coach, grad assistant, and then maybe someday an athletic director. And I'll never forget this. I was in the gym on 9-11. I got up at around, you know, 530 in the morning. We'd shoot a couple hundred shots and we'd run, we'd do all these different drills. And the last drill was a drill where we would, me and the point guard from the college basketball team, his name was Chris Zimmerman. He would throw the ball down the court and I would have to chase it, right? So he would get the rebound coming off the rim and I would be maybe like fall and extended. I would chase it and we'd dunk, right? And you had to make 10 dunks in a row. And you're never going to make 10 dunks in a row. You're like completely exhausted. The whole point is to exhaust yourself. And coach came in right before while we were running that drill with summer workouts. And he said, you know, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And so we kind of finished up. We were just getting ready to go in the shower. He's like, another plane hit the Trade Center. And I had, didn't have cable TV. I didn't have internet. I mean, I was a, I was a committed uh, college athlete at the time. And I was really committed to trying to be the best that I could be. And um, I started reading about it. And, you know, we went to like a cafe in the school and, and saw the people actually falling out of the buildings. And I said, you know, I got to do something different with my life. And, and I decided to move to Washington, D.C. Um, and, and I just kind of you know, decided I wasn't going to do the basketball route and I would try to have an impact. And I felt like the city would give me that opportunity. So that's really what brought me here. So you gave up basketball forever or you play now just for fun? I, I haven't played in a number of years. When I first moved here, and I'm very proud of this, I got my MBA, but I also coached this traveling basketball team that played 11 months out of the year, practiced twice a week, 11 months out of the year, played three weekends a month. And a couple of my players ended up going and playing Division One basketball. Um, so I'm very proud of that. Uh, when I started doing that, I didn't play as much because I was constantly with the team or I was getting my master's. When I got married, we took a step back from that because it's tough to travel that much to little gyms in like Orlando and Frederick and Ohio. My new wife well, was excited at first, but these towns don't have a lot to offer in terms of entertainment all the time. So I stopped doing that, and then we had kids. So now I just work with my kids, my son and my daughter. Is there anything you learned from that time being an athlete that you are still applying to your everyday career? It's a good question. I mean, athletes, you lose. Every play, you may win something on it, and you may lose something on it. And you really got to kind of be mentally resilient and kind of grind it out. And there's always somebody better. There's always somebody that does something better. So I think it's made me very resilient. I'm not afraid to be laughed at. I'm not afraid to miss a shot, right? It, it's kind of the same thing. And I think from coaching, one of the things that I learned from coaching, I, I thought I had a really good vision when I first started coaching. I didn't want to deal with the parents at all. I basically just ignored the parents completely. And one of the dads came up to me. He's like, you really got to pay attention to the parents. He actually moved and he works at Goldman Sachs now. He's, he's a partner up there and he was an investment banker in this area. And he goes, you really ought to pay attention to the parents. And he goes, tell you what, I'll be the CEO because he played college basketball too. He's like, I see the vision. I'll be the CEO. I'll communicate the message to them so you can be the chief operations officer. Yeah, I was 25. I mean, who wants to talk about playing time with some guy that you don't think understands basketball as well as you do and, and you're trying to give everybody playing time to create this like balanced team. 
Well, I learned the importance of kind of communicating and explaining what you're doing and, and having some patience. So I think from a basketball perspective, as a player, I learned to be resilient. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. You're going to be tired some days and not play well. You're going to play great some days. you got to bounce back regardless. I really learned you really have to take the time to communicate what you're doing and what your vision is. Not everybody's going to buy in, but you have to be patient and give everybody the time to actually have a chance to buy in. So those are the, probably the two biggest lessons from, from my basketball playing days. And by the way, I wasn't the greatest basketball player, okay? In high school, I was horrible. I was so bad that they called the uh, high school coach when I made varsity as a sophomore, didn't make it as a freshman, and they said he doesn't deserve to be on the team, let alone the JV team. Okay, he doesn't deserve to be on the varsity team little. And I ended up becoming like an all-state athlete, you know. But I, I really wasn't that good. But so, you know, you have to, when I'd say be resilient, like if you work at it, you, you can get better. But you got to kind of put the time in every day and you got to deal with the failures in a way that makes yourself better, that doesn't kind of tear yourself down. And that's a that's a really hard lesson to learn. I think you can only learn that from, from something like sport. I thought you were going to say teamwork, so that was a much more interesting <laughs> response. Well, teamwork, uh, obviously teamwork, right? But the, but it's really the resiliency that you're going to learn as an individual, right? Uh, you have to be resilient in order to compete in something. So, you know, teamwork is obviously a key part of it. But I think resiliency more than anything is what allows you to be a team player. You know, it's what allows you to cheer for the team when you played horrible. It's what allows you to kind of pick your teammates up when they're not playing well. And But you have to be resilient. You have to be able to be positive when things aren't going right for you and for the team. So I think resiliency is a little more important than teamwork. I wanted to go back real quick on training and educating the workforce. I wanted to know, did you find it was more beneficial or resourceful to educate the people on your team you already had on something like blockchain technology rather than scour for new IT talent? Yeah, so uh, we didn't hire anybody new. And in fact, when we did the work at GSA, we did it with the resources that we had other than the contractor that helped us with the development work. It's interesting when you say training to me. I don't think of it as training and educating. I think of it as creating an experience. It's another thing that I learned when I was coaching one of the things that I did when I was coaching is I, I got rid of all the rules, like out of bounds. I mean, of course, if you were running with the ball and not dribbling, we would say that you walked. But I got rid of a number of those rules so that they could learn the flow of the game and they could learn how to pass and cut. And I think that you know we're trying to create an experience for our workforce so that they can learn about blockchain and what these technologies can do in a natural way versus talking to them about what the technology can do versus explaining to them what an immutable ledger is. So we're, we're actually trying to actually create that experience. And, and you create experience through action, right? You create experience by putting people in situations. So uh, I wouldn't say training and education. I would say creating an experience. And we didn't, we didn't hire anyone new. Because, you know, what's interesting about these emerging technologies is that you don't have to be a technologist to rebuild a business. This is business process driven. If you want to rebuild a business, you have to understand what needs to change. And you have to understand that what you can change by enabling a process through technology. And the only way that you can do that is if you create an experience, right? Like this is an experience. This is a really cool experience for me to, to kind of hang out with you guys and hear myself talk in my ears through this headphone, which is really crazy. For a second, I thought I was like losing my mind. Like maybe I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> it's just you in there. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm just here. It's an experience, right? And, and it, makes your, it makes you feel like you're alive and in the moment. And so that's what we're trying to do with the workforce. Now, we can't touch everybody that way, 
um, but we, we're trying to make them imagine. Can, can you imagine the, the, what it's like to go through Target and buy something and look up the price on Amazon and have them lower the price? Imagine if I empowered you with that information at the point of purchase when you're actually making a federal purchase. So you had more information to negotiate with the giant company sitting across the table from you in the negotiation room. It's an experience. This has been such a great discussion on how much you have achieved and the hurdles you've overcome. And it sounds like you have a really exciting few months ahead of you. Thank you again for taking time to join us on our inaugural episode of GovCast. That was a great conversation with Jose. I really appreciated hearing about his journey from being a college athlete to going into government and making that decision to be a public servant on 9-11 and realizing maybe this is my true path. Yeah, that's really amazing. And especially going from basketball and how that helped him gain a sense of resiliency to turn that into this blockchain program at HHS where, you know, he compared it to taking your phone to a store like Target or Best Buy and being able to price match right there off of Amazon and seeing that immediately, that one second transaction. That's exciting for government. And I think it's fascinating that he does not see it as education that he's doing with his personnel, but it's more about the experience. He has a lot of knowledge about technology, as we heard, but he is really more about making it an experience and teaching people how something like blockchain can help solve a problem rather than just talking about the technical aspects of it. Yeah, he didn't hire a single new employee for this process, this program. So that's awesome to hear, especially as government agencies are struggling to find new IT talent. Maybe they can take a similar approach. Jose also mentioned that HHS Accelerate Blockchain program is ongoing and continuous. So we're really excited to see where he takes blockchain within HHS or if it expands from the public acquisition realm. He actually joined us from speaking in front of 3,000 people. He's circling the speaking market. So if you haven't seen him yet, I'm sure you'll see him around soon. And to stay in touch with us, make sure to check us out on Twitter. It's GCIO Media. And you can also find Amanda and I. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. This episode is sponsored by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about the company, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced by Tracy Madigan and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. 